0: Good afternoon. This is Edward Mazer, chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our program today, a most challenging program and informative, featured Arnie Duncan, former head of the Chicago school system, former secretary of education under Barack Obama, and the head of the Emerson Collective and CRED in Chicago. His core message, the current approach to ending violence and gun violence is not working. We have to take prevention to scale and look at it from some other perspectives. In addition to Arnie Duncan, our panelists included Jervon Hicks, a life coach, Billy Moore, who's overseeing CRED alumni, Aaron Taylor, one of the alumni, and the Reverend Marshall Marshall Hatch, Jr., who runs MAAFA, an organization in West Garfield Park. Mr. Duncan asked his friends to join with him and share their stories because, he said, their story is our story. It's about young men who are left to raise themselves, feed and house themselves, protect themselves from a cruel world that never really gave them the chance that many of us had. Like everyone else, they need to eat, pay rent, take care of their families, and the only path that was open to them was in the illegal economy. There were no summer internships in high school. No one handed these folks an apprenticeship in a union so they could learn a trade. No one made a phone call, got them that first job, that put a little money in their pockets and a line on their resumes. The only people in their community who took them under their wings, unfortunately, were gang leaders in the streets. These leaders taught them how to make some money, gave them guns for protection, showed them how to use it. Eventually, The law caught up with all of these folks, and they ended up in prison if they were lucky. When they got out, some of them went right back to the streets. It's all they knew. But some of them have become affiliated with organizations like Ready Chicago, Communities Partnering for Peace, and Chicago Cred, and have started to turn around their lives. Arnie Duncan and the panels will try to show you how they are the solution for the future. They have some most interesting and challenging thoughts on how society has come to this point in time and what it will take to dramatically
1: reduce gun violence. Thank you so much. I'm, by the fact that you all are here means you're missing the Chicago Sky Parade, so I apologize for that, but I appreciate you being here. And I think um, it is an honor to be back here. I, I've been able to do this for, for many years at this point, but I thought this topic is so important rather than just having some talk or lecture that we really hear from, from the experts on violence. And I think this club often hosts the powerful. I don't know how often you hear from the, the true experts. And what we have here is a panel of young men who um, are living in this world every single day. This is their life. And how we get to a better place as a city, I think there's no one better to hear uh, for you all to hear from them. And I'm going to leave plenty of time for questions at the end. And please ask anything. We're always very real and raw and honest. And I uh, apologize if that offends anybody, but I think it's the only way we get to get to the facts here. Just a quick intro, Uh, just give you my Saturday morning, woke up to a call from the police who were asking if I could help out with a a young football player at Morgan Park High School who had just gotten shot, uh, luckily survived, see if we could do something for his family. Um, After that call, got a call from the principal, Michelle Clark High School, uh, Charles Anderson, his star basketball player, Kiara Moore, had just gotten killed Thursday night and uh, it was her and her twin sister's. Birthday uh, on Sunday, and trying to work through that issue. So South Side, West Side, and we have representatives from the South and the West sides here, which is why I wanted that. And then um decided to walk outside and just go for a little walk, clear my head. And it's all kinds of chaos on the corner. And uh, an elderly gentleman, and his wife had just been carjacked. They were bringing in the groceries, and um, three young guys had uh, had had uh, come and gone to an altercation there, just on our corner. And so this is the reality that. Folks across the city are living with, and um, we have to get to a better place. We have to get to a better place. So we'll get into a conversation. We won't do long, long intros, but I'll just sort of introduce people as we get into questions. But I'll start with uh, with Marshall at the end, and Marshall and his father. Where's where's Pastor Hatch? He's he's here. Please give Pastor (laughs) Hatch a huge round of applause. someone I've worked with for a couple decades and Marshall's doing an extraordinary job and Marshall runs one of our close close partners runs the My Alpha Redemption project in West Garfield Park out of the church and Marshall take a minute and just sort of walk through the historical context of the My Alpha Redemption project what does that mean yeah. and just describe, uh, describe your program. Sure thank you
2: thanks for being here thank you for clapping for my dad that's my hero um, Essentially, the Moth Redemption Project is an extension of New Mount Pilgrim Church located in West Garfield Park. Uh, I'm sure we all know West Garfield has been struggling for a long time. Church has been in the neighborhood since 93, and my father's been in the trenches and so many others connected to that church. They've been in the trenches for decades. Um, It's the old St. Mel Holy Ghost Parish that we bought. From the Archdiocese in 93. And the beautiful stained glass windows, you know, representing Europe, European representations of Jesus, they were kind of falling in. So the church had a, a decision to make do we um, invest in restoring this art or do we sell this art and try to put in our own? We chose the latter. One of those pieces is the Ma'afa Remembrance window, which is the largest iconic display of the Middle Passage or the transatlantic slave trade in the world. And so from that inspiration that was installed in 2000, from that inspiration, we created the Ma'afa Redemption Project because we believe that uh, the young men in our neighborhood are best to redeem that history. So we invest in them with housing, mental health support, life coaching. We call it spiritual life coaching because it is a faith-based movement Uh, And a host of other supports. And uh, we've been at it for about five years, the highs and the lows, um, the violence right next door. Uh, But we remain hopeful that what we're doing will work.
1: And just just follow up, Marshall, what what has changed in your program? What have you learned? What are you doing differently now than you were four or five years ago? Um, And talk about residential model. Yeah, so
2: it's a housing first model which, of course, means you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You kind of have to uh, meet the basic needs before self-actualization happens. And so for us, that was housing. And the church over the years has Im- invested in abandoned properties, and the young men work to restore those properties, and they live on the campus of the church, uh, almost dormitory style. And the learnings, I mean, I've learned so much about myself. Uh, I've learned from the young men so much. I'm reminded of uh, Octavia Butler's quote, you know, everything you touch, you change. Everything you change, changes you. And I think what we found out is we need a more holistic vision to do this, Uh, not just about direct service, but community development. You can't have one without the other. So right now we're working with 15 community li- liaisons who are alumni of Maafa uh, to restore the neighborhood. And we're basing the vision of the new West Garfield park around what they want to see for them and their families.
1: Thanks. I'll go to Billy on my left. And uh, unfortunately, Billy, your life has been touched by gun violence in a whole number of different ways. Uh, unfortunately, you, tragically, you took a life. Um, you've had your son killed not too long ago, shot 16 times. Um, a couple of weekends ago, your stepson was shot, thank God he survived, and you've had a gun put to your head and been in some tough situations. Billy really came to us from Iman, one of our great partners on the southwest side, Now he oversees all of our work with our alumni from across the city. And as you work with our young men and, and uh, certainly women as well now, um, what are the biggest lessons that you try and instill
3: in our in our young men? I think one of the biggest lessons that I want these young men to walk away with is their, their greatest strength is, is their ability to think, their ability to reason. A lot of times, these young men resolve conflict based off their emotional, uh, uh, you know, feelings. They 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 respond to whatever the situation is, and then they instantly get angry and they want to they want to kill somebody. You know, that's not gonna. Put them in the best situation after they made a decision based off how they felt. So what I try to do is to get these young men the understanding that the greatest attribute that they have is their ability to think. You have to start out thinking your problems. you have to put your thoughts ahead of your feelings and unfortunately, so many of these young men that we see you know who have died or who have killed someone. Their first response was based off how they felt. So what we do, we try to get these young men to start thinking, thinking through their problems. Because to me, the mind is the greatest attribute that any human being has. The weakest attribute is your feelings. So if we can help these young men start outthinking their feelings. Then I think we can be successful in reducing gun violence. And I'll
1: go to Mr. Hicks who's he's technically a life coach for us but he's on the streets more than anybody so he's half life coach, half outreach worker he's, he's everywhere and um, for a long time you were caught in the streets carried a gun in and out of jail for a while and you uh, talked about sort of the, the powerful addiction of having a gun and talk about what that was like growing up in that environment how you were able to break away from that and now as a life coach for a lot of young men including Aaron and i will come to you next what are you trying to instill in them? what lessons?
4: Um, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, just
1: just again, I
4: say all the time, people don't understand the power of, of a handgun. Um, growing up, it was probably the best thing at that point in time that ever happened to me. I instilled fear and just about anybody I had a problem with. But I got to a point where I became disgusted. Um, came home, I think, 2015, I was offered the opportunity to either, Waste the rest of my life or make use of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I became a life coach through training. Um, and it's just like right now, I, when I look out here and see, it, it, you know, I overcame some of them obstacles and took advantage of my opportunity. And, and that's what has me here today. Um, couldn't think of a better place to be. Um, then again, when I look back and I see all the time I spent being locked up, all the gray hairs I put in my mother here, um, I didn't want to beat up to her grave. So, you know, I have figured out it's either now or never. And plus, the streets is undefeated. They ain't going to lose. So we try and still let them the young men and women we deal with. Um, it's definitely not a fair game. It's a real-life situation, and we still, again, losing lives. So...
1: And Aaron Taylor, uh, one of our alumni, came through the Youth Peace Center, which is one of our great partners um, on the south side in Roseland, sort of where our programming started with Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who are extraordinary. And uh, Aaron's now, well, we'll get into what you're doing, but it's interesting as we talked, um, I grew up in Hyde Park. My father was a professor at the University of Chicago. We basically lived on campus, and I grew up affiliated with the University of Chicago, still live still live there. That was my affiliation from birth. Um, based upon where Aaron was born, based upon his neighborhood, based upon where his block, he had a different affiliation from birth. Doesn't make me better or worse, doesn't make him better or worse, but in a city of probably only grew up four or five miles from each other. It's not that, not that far geographically, but worlds apart. But just for folks who didn't grow up in a community like that, what's that like growing up in, in uh, on the far south side?
5: <clears throat> um, first off, um, everyone give a, um, a round of applause for Mr. and Mrs. Jones for the YPC. Um, um, so where I'm from, you know, um, there's only opportuni- one opportunity when I was growing up, and that was to join a gang. Um I was raised by game members excluding my mom she's right there. <laughs> um I was I was I was raised by game members you know I looked up to game members you know um my brother he was a game member you know so that's really what my life evolved revolved around during that time you know um as I see you guys here you know dressed in your suits and you know and blouses and everything just dressed professionally you know we weren't taught that as kids you know we um we always thought you guys were like the uppity type you guys were too goody goody or things like that but you know as I've gotten older and I've connected myself with programs such as the Salvation Army, Chicago Urban League, YPC Center and now affiliated with the Iman Iman, you know um, organization that Billy has helped me with um I just you know I, I seen a different Different side to you guys' lives. I know just because you guys have on the suit, you know, um, some were born with the, with, you know, with the funds to bless. But at the same time, I know people who just, who just like you guys, who were born into money, but they also worked for it. So I don't really judge you guys at all because I know you guys probably had a hard growing up too. Look, you know, regardless if you guys were born into the riches, I know you guys worked for hard for your lives too. So. I mean, that's pretty much.
1: And lots of folks, and again, we have a variety of folks here, so I don't want to be too broad-based, stereotype, but lots of folks think people who carry guns are, like, fundamentally bad people. They're definitely scary people. They're definitely threatening. (laughs) Talk about at what age you started carrying a gun and why. Uh, I was 14 years old,
5: um, and it wasn't, I started carrying it because, you know, like I said, I wanted to be, like, the gang members. Not necessarily knowing what was going on during the time, I just wanted to follow the way and Of course, you know, as I've gotten older, I, you know I got in some trouble with guns. A lot of people during that time, people carry guns you know just to have a name for themselves. I never wanted a name for myself, but I did want to be a part of what was going on during that time. you know um so I mean, yeah, now carrying a gun is just for fun, you know, and I've gotten in some trouble. 2017, the first gun case of 2017, I um, got caught with a gun. Thirty minutes after my mom told me she don't want to get a phone call saying I'm dead or in jail, and I ended, she ended up getting that call saying I was in jail. So, um, um, you know, guns, people now they just carry it, you know, just for the fun of it. Guys are shooting just for the fun of it. Guys don't know the history of their neighborhoods or where they from. Some guys carry guns because they easily get mistaken. Some guys carry guns because they put themselves in situations where they have to carry guns. During the time I was in high school, I put myself in situations where I had to carry a gun. But as I got older, I really didn't, you know, I stayed away from the drama, you know, and I moved on, moved on into bettering myself. So, as far as for me, say, for me to say, I'm forever what I am, but I don't you know, go buy it anymore. So, I'm,
1: yes, I'm a, I'm a gang member, but I'm not a gang banger. Mm-hmm. And I always say all of our young men and women across the city, they all have role models. It's just a question of who those role models are. Everybody's being raised by somebody. Mm-hmm. And Aaron talked very honestly, like many of our guys, of who they are raised by. And it's, they're raised by folks on the street because folks in rooms like this, we are absent. And folks in the street are present, and that's who that's who their role models are, and our absence makes that possible. Because you've gotten older, being around Mr. and Mrs. Jones, having Hicks as your life coach, working with Billy now, what lessons have you learned from just a different kind of role model? They're also role models you know, before, but what have these kind of folks instilled in your thinking or made you think about your own life? Um, well,
5: Mr. Mr. Jones, um, they showed me opportunity, many, many opportunities. Mr. Hicks, he showed me that, you could be from the streets, but you can also have a mind of your own. You don't have to follow the leaders. You know, I, I know I know. You, you guys probably see or sometimes on social media see guys saying free Larry Hoover, or free Jeff Ford or King Gino or whoever. But people fail to realize that if they decide to free those guys, and that's a big if, um, they're not going to come home on that game bank and stuff. They're not going to come home and try to calm anything down because they don't know anything about this generation you know, guys, my age, we react off emotion, you know, and I, and I say my age, I say we, because I've react I've reacted off emotion numerous times. You know, I've been suspended 14 times in my high school, throughout my high school career in four years, and I've reacted off a lot of emotion after my cousin got killed. So that's, that's mainly what, you know, kind of got me into the physical part of the gang life. But yeah, Mr. Hicks, you know, we, in conversations about life you know he kept me he kept my head focused and billy here knowing who he is about watching 30 for 30 um no no, no one no <laughs> knowing um finding out about him you know what i'm saying through that kind of you know messed up because in the situation that he was you know he was in and the consequences that he had to pay for but as he reached out to me after i became a CREED alumni you know, he's connected me with the Eman organization. They've offered many, many opportunities. I'm in the Weekend Warriors program. Um, I have my, and I've recently acquired my MIG and TIG welding certifications. So, um, I mean, there's all kind of opportunities here. I met Arnie before I met Arnie, you know, playing basketball. That's another story. But uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that, though, man, these a lot of role models here, man. You guys are actually role models, you know, because a lot of us, we see on TV, and we see you guys, you know, with suits and living life, and I say living life in you know, nice houses, nice families. You don't have to. <clears throat> you don't have to look over your shoulders. We do, mm-hmm. you know, and we 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 get mistaken. <laughs> Lord knows how many times I've cheated death five, six times, but I keep going, and you know. But that was when I had myself in those predicaments, and now that I've evolved, you know, and listening to these guys, and of course my mother who's sitting right there, um, you know, it just kind of. I kind of realized that I was, you know, effing up. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Marshall, you've talked a lot about, and your father, the massive health disparities. The, you know, the average lifespan in, in Garfield Park is, whatever, 15, 16 years shorter than the lifespan of someone who, who, you know, happens to live downtown. One of the things that contributes to that shorter lifespan is obviously the the level of violence and the death. But one of the things that I think as a city we haven't focused on nearly enough is how few shootings and homicides get solved. There are very, very few, if any consequences. And the recent data has come out that says um, out of a a hundred shootings, whether fatal or not in Chicago, only 18 result in an arrest. So 82% chance that there are no consequences. And that is the lived experience of basically all of our men. But what's interesting is you dig into that data there are even disparities, not surprisingly, between communities. So in Garfield Park, where you're from, um, there, or there, when there's a shooting, there's an arrest 11% of the time. Mm-hmm. So basically 90% of the time, no impact. But if you live in, in the Loop or Norwood Park, there's arrests 40, 44% of the time. So four times more. And you can't really talk about violence here in Chicago or probably anywhere else and not talk about race. And when you hear that... 11% of the time, there's a consequence in your community In other communities. It's four times that. What does that tell you about how young men in your community are, are valued by our city? Uh, thank you for that, Aliu. <laughs> um,
2: the reality is we, we can't talk about interpersonal violence without talking about structural violence first. Uh, Structural violence in education. So there's one charter school in West Garfield Park, and last year that charter school led CPS in suspensions, and the kids weren't even in school. Um, Economic violence, of course. I'm, I'm sure many in the room are familiar with the Madison Corridor right pre 68 doctor king assassin, assassination riots uh, what how vibrant that was and it really hasn't been restored yet that's intentional policy fast forward i mean we, when we talk about invest southwest west garfield park didn't make the cut so these these are policy decisions and we're seeing the the day-to-day effects Uh, And we have to talk about the structural violence first. Why? Because, of course, they have racial implications. As you duly noted, you know, 77 neighborhoods, communities in, in Chicago, West Garfield Park ranks number one in potential life loss, which is a metric for premature death. So it is the gun violence, but it's also the other things. Hypertension, so the it 's like death by a thousand cuts for for many of those who live there, and on top of all of that, rumors of displacement and gentrification so if you can imagine those who have those elders who've lived in the neighborhood for decades now that there 's a whiff of change coming they 're scared that they won 't be there so We have a decision to make, of course, in Chicago. I was looking at the 2020 census data. Of course, demographics nationally are changing. They're also changing in Chicago. Eighty percent of the children in Chicago are children of color. So this is not just about charity. This is about strategy. We have to invest in young black and brown kids for the future of the city. And if we don't do it now, the window of opportunity is is fastly closing.
1: <laughs> so much of the So much of the violence we face is actually retaliation, because there's not justice in the criminal justice system. People think they have to take the law into their own hands. If no one else values my, my family, my cousin, my you know mm-hmm. guy in my block, then we have to show our value for them. and so. We're always trying to stop the next shooting and stop the retaliation. And the most powerful way to stop retaliation is through reconciliation. And 34 years to the day after Billy unfortunately took Ben Wilson's life, um, had an incredibly powerful reconciliation with, with Benji's brothers. Probably the most powerful night of, of my life. And then. Um, He has said, and I believe him totally. And I I learned so much from him that if the young man who killed his son came into our program, that he would not retaliate. That he would take him into the program and mentor him. That he can't ask for forgiveness and reconciliation if he can't give that. But what's it like? What was it like to spend that evening with, with Billy's brothers and? What's what's it like? How how do you have it in your heart to do something if, if something happened to my son or daughter? I don't know if if I would be able to do that. Right. And how are you able to come to the place where um, you actually think you could bring that person in who took who took your son's life and try and help them get to a better place?
3: Well, at 16 years old, I had one of the greatest gun problems that anybody could ever have when I pulled the trigger and ended Benji Wilson's life. And I felt that the the weight of the world and the energy of the hate, particularly from the city of Chicago, directed at me. 41 days later, when I was in Division Six, after I turned 17, I was taken to the boiler room. And by three Cook County sheriffs, I was told that I was going to write a letter to my mother saying that I couldn't cope. So basically, they were they were they were preparing to end my life Mm. in the basement of Division six in the boiler room. And basically, you know, I prayed that I would walk out of that boiler room, which I did. I understood the the, the energy and the hate that was directed at me based off a mistake that I had made because I decided to pick up a gun. And I tell these young guys, when you pick up a gun, you get gun problems. That you may not be prepared to deal with. A lot comes with that. So because of everything that I felt, the hostility and the hatred for me because of the mistake that I had made, you know, and I don't underestimate the mistake because it cost somebody their life. I didn't look at Benji's celebrity. I looked at him as a human being that I have to live with. I felt as if, you know. 20 years probably wasn't enough of a sacrifice. There's something else I may have to give up, and I didn't know that that would come in the form of me losing my own son, who was shot 16 times. So I couldn't be a hypocrite when I stand in front of the young men that I work with every day to try to get them to understand how to reconcile a situation before it leads to the loss of life and them possibly spending the rest of their life in jail if I couldn't find within me The same type of forgiveness that I just wanted people to show towards me when I was 16 years old and made a mistake. So I was able to come out of that boiler room, you know, and I'm here today. So in order for me to really do the work that I do, I can't be willing to now go back and be like everybody else who harbored that hate and that energy towards me for the person that killed my own son. You know, sometimes in life when you decide to do things or change the way you do things, the test that comes your way to prove that you really have changed will be the greatest test that you may have to face. And that's what, you know, that's what anything that's worth changing for. So when my son got killed, I had to make a decision. I I got a call because I was all the way up north registering for school when 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 he got shot. And maybe 10 minutes away, I got another call and my cousin, she said, they putting the tape up around the car. So I asked her one question. Is he still in the car? And she said, yeah. So at that moment, I knew he was dead. So right then and there, I knew that was my sacrifice. And I had to have forgiveness in my heart at that moment for whoever was responsible for doing what they did. So the night that I had the opportunity to sit across the table from Ben Wilson's two brothers, although I did 20 years and it was 30 some years later, if this is what they needed to kind of heal from their grief, I was willing to do that because my job right now is a healer. You know, when you see these young men killing people out here in Chicago, we got, we already Jalen can give you the numbers, how many homicides we've had this year. You know, that's, uh, a behavior of pain That we see being acted out From trauma Of young men who Basically we pretty much Thrown away we, we said we they're not worthy I have to help heal these young men Before they get into that point Because I've healed I'm a healer You know You see young men Pain What we say You know People who are in pain You know Hurt people Hurt people Hurt people, hurt people. You know I cannot continue to hold hurt in my heart and work with these young men if the only thing I'm thinking about is killing the young men who killed my son. Like, everybody thought about what they needed to do to me. So I have to be opposite. I'm out here healing people. I'm out here trying to help people to understand the right way of dealing with their conflict. So I I felt it was a responsibility for me to help his brothers heal. I did my time. You know, I was done with that, but they were willing to sit across the table. So if this is what it took for me to help them heal from their resentment and their pain, then that's what I that's why I showed up that night and I sat across the table so that they can understand also the man I was and the work that I was doing, you know, with Chicago Creed to help these young men who are out here that's creating grief the way I did.
1: And unfortunately, like, You know, 82 to 90 percent of shootings, the the case for your son has not been solved. Um, You and I know very, very likely who did it. Mm -hmm. Um, You wouldn't have to retaliate. There are folks who would do that for you. That's been offered. Mm
3: -hmm. Why do you turn down that request? Because, like I said, I cannot stand in front of the young men that I work with every day to ask them to change if in fact that I'm still basically the same. Um, Like I said, that was, that was the test for me to, to know that I have changed what I wanted. I can't expect people to get in me if I'm not willing to offer it, which was forgiveness. Um, No one knows the, the pain of a death that, That's close to you when somebody is murdered, unless you experience that. And I hope that no one who hasn't experienced that will have to experience that. But that's a pain that will never go away. That's a void and a hole in your life that could never be filled. But at some point you have to understand, like Marshall talked about, the conditions that create this hopelessness in young men that we are working with. You know, we have worked with over 300 young men since Chicago CRED has started. And we've identified maybe 1,100 to 1,200 young men that we need to work with. For the first three years, we've experienced reductions. But, of course, we all know what happened the last couple of years. So that lets you know just how much more work that needs to be done, how many more young men that need to be touched in order for us to get to where we need to get at. And that that, that also means that everybody in this room, if you feel kind of disattached from what's going on, I just heard about a police getting shot yeah. yesterday in Lakewood
1: Park. Close to here.
3: Yeah. To here. So it's it's starting to come a little closer to home now. You know, this city is a great big city, but it's a small city as well. You know, violence can be proximate, but it can also extend beyond its borders in which we tried to contain it by neglecting certain areas and thinking that that's not our problem. Oh, it's everybody in this room problem. Everybody. Because it affects the bottom line.
1: Just one comment, just to build on upon what Billy said. You guys probably know this. I hope you do. That Chicago is six times more violent than New York, three to four times more violent than L.A. So we are absolutely the anomaly. We don't have to be this way. Other cities have figured this out. People often think, oh, more violence. We need more police. Um, New York has the same number of police per citizen than us and six times less violent. And L.A. has significantly less police than us and is significantly less violent. And, again, this is not anti-police by any stretch. We work with police all the time, including this weekend, as I mentioned. Um, but when the city's up 50% in violence and with randomized control trials coming out of Northwestern has been evaluating our work, we're showing a 50% reduction in victimization, 48% reduction in, uh, in, in arrests city up 50%. We're down 50%. Mm-hmm. There's never one easy answer. <laughs> But the fact is a city we're choosing not to scale the kind of work that these men are doing across the city is a little, is a little stunning to me. Um, Mr. Hicks, part of what we do is we go um, is mostly pre pre-pandemic, we gotta get back doing it again, is go to Cook County Jail and recruit guys out of there. i have had some amazing young men come in. because um, we're always trying to work with the guys who are most at risk of shooting and being shot. And unfortunately, Cook County Jail has some of them. And for you to go in there as a free man and spend some time and talk and walk out as a free man, that was a little bit of a different experience. Uh, what was that like for you? Um, so
4: this is, it's really undescribable. If you've ever been incarcerated, you know, you have to go through strip searches and all this. So this one particular time, um, he said, we're going to go talk to some inmates. I said, okay, cool. Right. So it was get out of the car. I'm already taking my belt out, my shoestrings. <laughs> and he's like, no, Hicks, you don't have to do all that. And so we go through the back. Um, brief few people, they let us in. So as I'm putting my belt back in, I'm still holding it out. I know that's the procedure. They want to search it. Um, but it was a great experience because I ended up going on. It's, it's a little different when you, when you actually incarcerated and you know it's a certain amount of time you use the phone or use the restroom or you got to eat by a certain time. When you, get, when you get in there as a free man from someone that had been in that position and you get to talk to young men and, and you see these doors being clicked open and you say, wow, I've been here. Um, and, of course, in my mind, I'm never going back unless it's a situation like that. Um, and I also got to engage some individuals that was from actually from Roseland, which made me feel real good and sad. And lo and behold, as they was released, um, two of them became participants. Um, and it was actually doing real well. With the program, but it's it's no better experience than to go back um, and be able to teach someone from your mistakes so they don't make them over again. So that's how I looked at the situation. Um, and I do look forward to doing that again sometime soon because I think they fed us too kind of. There wasn't no jailhouse food, but so I was appreciative of that. But um, just a great opportunity, man, to be able to sit sit here. I often look, again, I always say this, it's, it's not about me or about the Billies. It's it's about the team effort. Yeah. Um, you see me as a life coach, but you don't understand I have a staff that I work with um, that we kind of attack individuals together. It's, it's not just Hicks one-on-one. And I learned through that the best experience is learning when you need help as a coach. Um, it, it may not be my battle. I may need a Mr. Jones or a supervisor. So it works out well for me, Uh and I just appreciate the opportunity and appreciate you guys having me here. I'm a little nervous, but I'm okay now.
1: <laughs> I told Hicks I'm nervous every time I do this, so it's, uh, it's, it's good to be a little nervous. I three final questions that I want to open up to you guys because it's really important to hear f- from you and to get a chance to talk to these guys. This is obviously a pretty civilized environment, but I, I've been with you, unfortunately, um, on a block with a homicide. <laughs> With trauma and chaos and just sort of the worst, worst imaginable situation, one of our young men, and explain to folks here what those situations are like and what you try and do in those situations to to calm things down and to stop the next shooting. Yeah, so
4: it's, so it's basically you know again, shout out to our outreach team. Um, we got six to eight outreach workers, both men and women, who on the ground just about every day. Um, that was my first pass in outreach. So. Um, a few months ago, we had a young man, very young, very charismatic, uh, great energy, team leader. Unfortunately, within a few weeks of us and he was killed, freak accident, or uh, you know, however they may say it was. Um, but it just was the chaos I never forget. Um, when we went to the block, it was maybe like two hundred people out, um, detectives running around, helicopters in the air, and so at this point, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever been at a live homicide. Um it's all type of emotions in there, even the pets is jumping around the gates because there's so much going on. And I just remember telling this one young man, um, Go home. Go home. Go home, right? So he heat. I don't know what happened. Next thing you know, I see his feet in the air mm-hmm. um and they throwing him in a paddy wagon. And lo and behold, right after that he did his mother the same way, and then they did our sister the same way. And it's these these relatives to our participant. And I just remember Arnie asked me what should we do? And and this this is what I love about me. I'm I'm real spontaneous. And so I, I thought to myself, what would work right now? Cause fighting the police ain't gonna get it. I don't know if people think that's the new lottery, getting a lawsuit. I don't wanna <laughs> be a part of that. because um, you might not survive to see the money. Um however, um honestly, um so so however I I, I asked Arnie to, to grab his side we had now, this is not just me and him. It's like 10 workers out here, outreach and everything. So everybody gets somebody that's excited, right? And you got to think of people calling you out your name and F the police and this, that, and the other. we literally picking people up, holding them against the gate. Like, my body, you between me and the gate. And just whispering in the ear, don't don't lose. Don't lose right now. And that's what we tell them. Don't lose because it's not a winning situation. And uh, lo and behold, you know, as time went by, everything settled down. But it was just this one officer; he just wouldn't let it go. And, and I say that to say this: you know, you never know who going to talk in the community about what happened. But it's always one spoiler, whether it's an officer or or a neighbor, that kill the vibe, right? It's, it's nowhere in the world and nobody wants to talk and say what's happening. Right. You're just afraid of who to talk to. Uh, I'm not condoning who you talk to, but but at this point. It's, it's time for somebody to step up until they hit home. Then that's when everybody want to talk. Um, so with that being said, you know, start start helping people monitor your kids when you can't monitor. And that's what we ask people. It starts in the house. We only build a relationship with them. And when they get home, it's a different relationship. So we're trying to ask for people inside at home, you know, to help kind of tune things in with us so we, we can provide the right services.
1: We have amazing, amazing days and graduations and all kinds of celebrations and, and great stuff, but I also don't want to blow through the, the, the hardest stuff. And unfortunately, we, we have lost. And um, as we work with more and more men, the, the honest reality is we will continue to lose some. And unfortunately, recently, we lost uh, alumni, uh, actually from the first cohort of Iman, um, Albert Mullins, I mean, not Iman, uh, of Mayafa. And uh, he was in a. He was an alumni working with Billy. Was at our made manufacturing facility. Where we're creating jobs for men. And um, I'll just say, Marsha, I haven't even told you this. That morning when I was at the, the church, uh, I saw your life coaches. They were helping your young men put their ties on, and it was this unbelievably father loving, loving gesture. But it hit me that obviously our men's fathers aren't there, so our, you know your life coaches are doing it. Um, but then the thing that really hit me the hardest was when you normally putting on a tie, it's like for a wedding or for a graduation or something. And your young men were putting on ties to be pallbearers, to go to service. And that in too many of our communities, that's the thats the rite of passage. That's the transition. It's not the graduation. And it, um, it, it broke me a little bit to, to see that I had to, I had to walk out. And I just want to ask you how you handle these situations and how does the community keep moving forward when we lose a great young man like Al? Yeah, I personally didn't handle that well
2: because we were so close. He was a part of the first cohort. We had 12 young men in it. He was actually the residential assistant yeah. in the housing. So he made the other guys do their chores. He was just a leader. Um, And really born into it, you know, his father was deep in the streets. And his father was killed a year before he came to us. And I remember L telling me, he went by L, his nickname, that everybody in the neighborhood knew who did it. His mother was actually, you know, saying, what are you going to do to protect the family? So he was faced. This is not who I want to be. But... You know, is this what I have to do? Is this who I have to be in order to get justice? You know, and it kind of puts flesh on those statistics that you cited earlier about the homicide clearance rate. Well, yeah, I I didn't handle it well. I mean, I I leaned on my father, uh, best pastor in the world. Not just saying that Uh, he actually is um, writing a book called Cornerstones. It talks about his experience, really. Um, ministering to families, preaching eulogies, um, just being a healing presence, as as Billy mentioned, but that takes its toll as well. And so it's the community of faith that that is the miracle that is New Mount Pilgrim Church. We support each other. You know, we were doing wellness checks before the pandemic. You know, so it's we we lift each other up, we encourage each other, but that was hard for us. Um, I think moving forward, our goal is to to do more to develop leaders like Elber. Like that's what we've been inspired because that's who he was. That's his legacy. So I'm actually headed right after this to a leadership retreat. With Fifteen of our guys uh, in Green Lake, Wisconsin, because yeah. we believe that that's. One of the keys, as well, developing young men who will better than you and I can speak to the younger
1: ones, 11, 12 years old on the streets. My last question for uh, for Aaron, and then we'll open it up to you guys. Is you, know, you guys read? I've read about you know business leaders you know worried about the violence. They're going to leave the leave the city. Their company's going to leave the city. I say all the time that our young men are the solution to the problem. They're not the problem. They're going to lead us to someplace better. But as Aaron and I have talked, and he's going through this welding training, he's going to have some skills, be able to make some some real money. Um, He's talked about he needs to leave the city. And for me, that loss is as great, as significant as any business leader in here because we need him in the community with young guys talking his leadership. So, just to Aaron, a question for you—not to put you on the spot, but what would it take for you to stay in the city to raise your family here? How would the city have to change so that that would be a viable possibility, and you wouldn't have to feel you have to escape a war zone to 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 to, to achieve some peace? And, and believe me, I understand that. I absolutely understand that. But what would it take to keep you in the city? First, I need a lifetime contract with the Chicago Bulls.
5: <laughs> uh, no, um, the this guy. Scott. This guy. <laughs> Can't really say too much. Uh, but no, um, in all honesty, um, I mean, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. So even even if I leave, I'm going to still be here. You know, my mom will be here. You know, um, I plan on moving away, yes, but that's just only because I need a change of scenery. I've been to Chicago my whole life. I've been downtown, up north, northwest, east, south, however you want to say it. Um, I've pretty much done everything down here, all the events. I need to change the scenery you know I'm I'm gonna go somewhere where I could look less over my shoulder than what I'm doing now you know like Billy could be sitting here yeah but I still looking over here cuz you know I you know it's just it's just the, the paranoia that guys my age we we deal with because of the situations we put ourselves in coming up um but, but yeah to answer the question I'm here I'm not going anywhere like I said I just want to take my trade you know I I have seven long months left before I graduate trade school, and um, after that, like I said, I just want to take my trades and I want to go ahead and apply it to something else, uh, to another city. But I'm far away. I'm forever Chicago. I'm not going nowhere.
3: Aaron, we need you to (laughs) (laughs) Shout Out to the coast.
6: Well, I think this was an incredible uh, program, wasn't it? A lot of thought. By the way, if you'd like to um, listen to our comments, we uh, the City Club partners with WGN Radio seven twenty on your AM dial, and uh, we do a podcast of this program, so you can go back and revisit. Uh, we have several questions here, and by the way, Arnie, are you going to um, talk to some of the press people afterwards? Absolutely. Okay, because there are a couple of questions here that deal with, as you could imagine. Politics, And we'll save those for the um, uh, news conference afterwards. Thank you. Um, This question here, well, several of you mentioned that these killings, these shootings, that uh, people in the neighborhood know who are responsible for them. And we often read in the paper statements made by uh, police authorities that there is a, um, a lack of cooperation in the community. What are... The most important things that can be done to improve this cooperation between
1: community people like yourself and uh, the CPD Uh I'll I'll start quickly and open it up I would be really really clear here Um, it's not a lack of cooperation it's a lack of trust and uh, you you have to um, the only way life works is you build relationships. There's nothing about the name Mayafa or YPC or CRED or Iman. There's nothing in the name that changes lives. It's all relationships. It's, that's the only thing that matters. And when you have police who have relationships with folks in the community and there's trust, good things happen. Our first peace treaty we put in place with Alderman Beal and his ward and built a playground. We had two groups, a lot of bloodshed on both sides. They got tired. They put in place a peace agreement They went to the local police officer who lives in the community, happens to be a woman, which is not surprising, and basically talked about it with her. That's community policing. Um, When police are an invading force, when we're at a homicide scene and Mr. Hicks is trying to calm things down and they're trying to arrest him, when they don't know who's who... um, you don't have a chance to, to do it. I'll, I'll stop. Yeah, I got strong opinions um, there.
3: But I, there, th- I think else it's yeah, I want, I want to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. I think it's uh, definitely about relationships, but relationships is hard to build. If you got a police officer working in Englewood from Mount Greenwood, you know, Mount Greenwood has a generational uh, uh It stretches all the way back probably to when they was doing patty rolling and chasing slaves to right now policing. That's coming to work in communities that they're not from and they don't see themselves as serving and protecting. It's all about enforcing the law. So you will never be able to build relationships with that type of mentality when you come to work every day, when you see the community that you work in not a part of the community that you allegedly supposed to be serving and protecting in. Thank Mark, you, Billy. Mark. Uh, this is an interesting
6: question. It's from uh, Sarah Spunt with an organization called Lift Chicago. <clears throat> San Francisco recently started paying people $300 a month if they did not have a gun-involved incident. Have you thought about incorporating restricted cash payments as part of violence prevention interventions? Any
1: thought about that? Well, to be clear, the young men that work in our programs, we do pay them. We pay them to participate. We pay them to get life coaching. We pay them to get... uh, We didn't talk enough today about the clinical services helping our men heal from trauma. That may be the most important thing we do. Pay them to get their high school diplomas. The, The complication, and this is a really, really hard one, we have real tough and honest conversations, the vast majority of guys carrying guns in the city are carrying them what we call defensively, playing defense, because they do not feel safe. And so you can see all the stats about how many guns the police get off the streets, and we're fine for getting the guns off the streets, but that has zero correlation, zero, with reducing violence, because the vast majority of people carrying guns are carrying them only because they don't feel safe. And we work with guys over time to put those guns down, but we have lots of young men who, because they live in war zones, because they don't feel protected, and I'm not justifying it, but I do understand it a way I didn't five years ago, who feel they have no choice other than to carry a gun, and they recognize the consequences, and they choose those consequences rather than the possibility of them dying. So this is a really complicated. Aaron, I don't know if you want to speak. I mean, you've, so Aaron's had a gun case, carried guns, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, am
5: I, am I, if I'm wrong, say I'm wrong. So. No, you're not wrong at all. Honestly, um how you mentioned how San Francisco they pay. So you have guys throughout organizations that, you know, if you pay them, you know, um, you know, for that time, you know, you, you're paying them for that time and you just want them to get the experience to see if this is something that they would um, pursue later on down in life. You have guys that will do that, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to put the guns down. Like I say, as far as situations, okay, guys are in situations. So, you basically they will agree you, They will agree to put the guns down to come to this program but once they leave they have to pick their gun up again because they still got to make a home I I know guys that carry their guns in grocery stores in, in Chicago it gets like that you know guys will shoot grocery stores uh, 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 parks rallies so I mean so yeah for them to come to the program yeah you I mean you paying them but they're not going to bring a gun to your program but when they're back out on the streets the guns
1: they're going to come back? Up. And quickly, sorry, so much we didn't talk about, but just very quickly, one of the things our street outreach team does that's so important is they try and put in place non aggression agreements and peace treaties with groups that are in conflict. And when you do that, we'll put in place over 40 across the city. And sometimes they're tenuous, sometimes they fall apart, but they've been really, really important. And when you do that and you get both sides to commit to not shooting, then you create the space where people can put their guns down. <laughs> But you have to have that kind of that kind of work. And we continue to try and expand upon that across the city.
5: And I, and, um, so- oh, I'm sorry. I, I have one more comment. And what Arnie was talking about, that is possible. Um, my best friend in high school, he's from the opposite side. We've been best friends for 11 years now. My mom considered him as a son. He's been in my house. I've been in his neighborhood. There's been no problems on either side. So it's possible. But only if guys want it.
6: OK, we have several questions here along the uh, same line of discussion. Uh, this is from uh, Dwayne Deskins, who's a former federal prosecutor. He wants to know about um, an effective gun strategy. Does Chicago have an effective gun strategy to reduce uh, violence? Mm-hmm. If not, why not? If they do have it, could you tell me what it is? <laughs> Yeah, I don't who it. wants to deal with that, Mister Blue Jay? <laughs> I, you know, I or just want. Why it. he's wearing that
4: blue I, jay? Hat. I just. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> got me. Um, you know, that's a tough question because in order for you to understand about gun violence and who carrying guns, you got to get your shoes dirty. So I don't know if the people asking these questions ever been to the neighborhoods where the gun violence is at, but um. It's no it's no specific answer to that. Um, you can walk past somebody who with a fresh haircut and pants pulled up, and he had the biggest gun in the world, and you can walk past somebody with his pants sagging, you see his underwear, he has nothing. So it's, it's all in, in putting your, your feet on the ground and communicating with the environment that you live in, and then you'll, you'll absolutely for sure know who to engage. But that's just my answer. It's no definitive answer. To, do we have a... Just um, really quick. I'd I like to make... I'm, I don't know don't, if... I'm not sure if America
2: has an effective right, gun violence. Right. Gun Probably.
6: Yeah,
2: guns, but... yeah and, I, and I think it's cultural. I mean, Richard Slocken, he has a trilogy of books, one of them, Gunfighter Nation, talks about the American ethos, right? The, the wild, wild west. We celebrate John Wayne killing the natives. I mean, this is in our DNA to an extent. Now, when it When it comes to moving forward, of course, we need a revolution of values. I mean, but we've killed our profits. King talked about militarism, racism, and materialism, the triple evils of our society. That's a prescription. We need to revolutionize what we value. We need to value. 70 children have been shot in Chicago this year. Like We we have to think differently. We got to reimagine, and we have to start trusting each other. I did want to say one thing on the police thing. I do think it's important to acknowledge that, acknowledge the FOP's outsized uh, influence on the way things are on the ground. I mean, you, if you have a president, a guy like John Cantanzara, who one day celebrates what happened January 6th and then tries to recant, he's the leader of our police department and encouraging police officers not to get
6: vaccinated, and we
2: all are, I mean, let's well, start we having a those conversations. I feel we won't be
6: honored by you or cred as the man of the year. <laughs> Billy, That's for Billy, sure. Billy. Um, we do have another couple questions. I'd like to try to squeeze them in. Uh, thoughts about bail reform? Who would like to jump on that? Uh, really quick.
2: I don't appreciate the the back and forth. I don't think it's helpful. Um, I think we can have both bail reform and public safety. And the way that uh, the conversations have been had is that it's either or. I think we can do both. Of course, yeah, I think.
6: Very good. I have a couple of questions here. I'll just mention a few names. Uh, Jack Lavin with the Chicago Chamber of Commerce. Jack Hartman, someone, Lawrence, he's with CRED, I think. He's a member of your organization. And uh, Katrina Wadi. Katrina, we invite you to become a member of the City Club. And Harvard Singh over here, a member of our City Club. Uh, And the questions are, what can people in this room do to help organizations like yours and help reduce the kind of violence we're seeing in the city of Chicago
3: currently? Well, first, I think when you see uh, things happening or how it's been reported out, not to prejudge, uh, not to see just the numbers, but understand that, like Marshall said, put flesh on those statistics. Uh, These are people that are going through uh, real situations out here. Uh, So with that being said, also, you have a vote. We have to change policies, you know, as it relates to how we regulate guns in the city of Chicago. We have to start demanding more out of our policymakers to be more equitable as it relates to education and things that affect uh, the structural violence that leads to what we are trying to reduce gun violence Mm -hmm. i think like i said earlier uh violence is proximate but it's starting to extend beyond those borders Mm -hmm. so you are definitely no different from me as becoming perhaps a victim of some type of random Mm -hmm. violence that we don't ever want to see happen so just get involved, get more educated uh, and make your vote count towards something that's going to uplift this city. Aaron, and then I know uh, Javon has um, <laughs> um,
5: um, 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 Reassurance. You always want to, you guys, you say the question is that what can they do to help the you know, organizations? Um, just, to, you know, assure, help them assure that organizations that. Change can happen, you know. Where I'm from, if any guy was to see a suit or a blouse, we think in Rico cases. We not even thinking nothing else. So, so, so you know, so like just you know, re- reassure the organization. Show show the people in the city that you can put a t shirt, some jogger pants, some gym shoes on. You can get down and dirty with us, and we can make our you know fix our community gardens, uh, uh car, community car washes, things like that. Put people in the other positions. I'm um, not saying you guys don't care about the community, you know, not saying you do. I mean, who knows? We all have our own thoughts, right? But it's just, you know, we, what we going through. And like Billy said, people are going through some real, real hard times. So, you know, you just want to assure them that they, you know, they can be safe.
6: Mr. Hicks.
4: Um, My my response is for all the business people in the room um, who have businesses, provide some of these young men with opportunities that's not in our neighborhood where they're prone to violence. Um, and tr- and learn, learn to trust
6: the process. Well, there are a number of business people here, so that's a real challenge. Thank you. I have one last uh, comment, and it's directed at uh, Arnie, Arnie Duncan. Thank you for bringing the group here. Thank you for coming to City Club. <laughs> Former head of the BGA wrote in Cranes about a week or two ago. That you should become the anti violence czar (laughs) in Chicago. Would you be interested if such a position were to appear? I second
1: that motion. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't have a great answer to that one. I'll just try and answer your your other question, maybe, is that I just want people here to understand that these guys are the solution, they're not the problem. We have to invest in them. we talk about jobs all the time. All of our guys need jobs to the back end. I can't ask them to put down the guns and not have a legal way to make money. We have people working in all kinds of different industries. We have two of our alumni working at law firms downtown, Working one working at Deloitte, and it is a different talent pool than some of you guys are used to, but these are men, just like Aaron, who are leaders, who are committed, who are resilient, who want something better for themselves, for the families and community, and... If you want to write us a check, that's fine. But honestly, we'd prefer you to hire at the back end. And we're not going to give you somebody right out of Cook County Jail. They'll work with us for a year, 18 months, whatever, and get them to a place where they're able to do that. But you have to invest in these men. You have to invest in these communities. You can't have these kind of disparities that Marshall talks so eloquently about that have been true. You know, King came to North Lawndale in what year? 60, was it 66? 60. 66. 66. 66. In North Lawndale, we're trying to triple down and quadruple down in North Lawndale right now because it's still so tough. And so we will either decide we have one city or we'll keep deciding we have 70 or 80 neighborhoods. And that's the, the fork in the road. And I think you guys can lead us to a, to a better place.
6: Okay. Thank you.
5: Aaron? Yes, um sitting
6: over
5: here. Yeah. Yes. Um if you
6: can do two things, around, <laughs> someone's card out of there. I got a card. Okay. And then make your comment.
5: Uh yeah, I'm um, just like um you know just like uh Mr. Hicks said uh the business business women and men. Um you know, um how Arnie said we're not going to send you guys straight out of the county jail. But even if they have at least two or three weeks, some sort of experience, and if you guys have a position that, you know, they may be interested in, you know, just don't, don't deny them. You know, um, I encourage some of these businesses to have programs where they can help them achieve so that they can, you know, instantly, once they, you know, got their, uh, reach those achievements, they can come right in and, you know, start the apprenticeship with you guys or, you know, just give them opportunity. They don't necessarily like, you know, um, Say a guy has been out for a month, and he has 2 months certification, uh, two-month, uh, what you call it, uh, carpentry, and he doesn't have the full knowledge of it, and you guys are looking for a full-experienced guy. I mean, I wouldn't say turn him around. He has some knowledge. So you guys have programs within your industry to, you know, get him up to bases, then he can instantly start work,
0: you know, things like that.
6: Thank you, Aaron. Okay.